Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave those reviews. If you listen on the website, that's always great, but it's always better for the show if you go to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, sharing the podcast with others is usually how we grow anyway, and that is always appreciated to see. We have seen some significant growth here in the last few weeks. The top five shows that I've ever recorded have happened here with in the last five episodes, so it is it is really cool to see you guys sharing and leaving feedback and letting me know that you love the show. So it is good to have you guys on board. If you're new, glad to have you on board, and I hope you enjoy this and future episodes. In this week's show, for the first segment, we're going to talk about Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, and how he's causing chaos among Democrats with his opposition to various parts of the progressive agenda in Washington, D.C., particularly this week on a certain bill that Democrats have put together regarding voting rights. And then we're going to look from there how we can read between the lines and see how his actions and what he's doing, what that tells us about some of the other more centrist Democrats in the caucus. In the second segment, we'll do the COVID-19 update and all the great numbers that are happening there. And then we're going to wrap up with this week's light item, which is focuses on the D-Day remembrances. So not totally light, but I did want to highlight D-Day because it's always good to remember what happened then. So that is the agenda for this week's show. So we can jump right in and get right to it. So as I said, Joe Manchin, and he's a senator out of West Virginia, if you've never heard of him, if you follow politics at all, and I'm assuming if you listen to this podcast, you are a particularly close follower of politics. You have heard of West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin because he is probably the most centrist Democrat around. And over the weekend, on Sunday in fact, he delivered a very loud rebuke to his own party and he published an op-ed in one of West Virginia's newspapers with the headline, quote, Why I'm Voting Against the For the People Act. So the For the People Act is otherwise known as H.R. 1 or S.R. 1. It was pitched as Democrats' first major legislative action other than the COVID-19 relief bill at the beginning of the Biden administration, and it has gotten absolutely no Republican support in either the House or the Senate. I know none in the Senate, and I haven't seen any in the House. That could change, as some of the stuff does, but I haven't seen any. And in a nutshell, Democrats want to pass just this massive piece of legislation that introduces a number of far-left wishes in elections and makes just frankly very little sense. It was very clearly put together by Democrats in a very safe district who have really no idea how elections work. This thing is well over... It's close to 900 pages. It's around 850 pages, and it approaches 900. It's just basically a progressive wish list of things they want in elections. They've taken absolutely no input from anyone else on this. 
it is a complete and utter partisan bill on the issue of elections. And so it comes about, just if you're looking at it you know, as, a, as a big overview, it's about as close as Congress can get to federalizing and making elections the same in all 50 states and all jurisdictions there outside of that. So in the news media, I mean, you just hear about voter suppression and, and Republicans are opposing this because they want voter suppression. This doesn't have anything to do with that at all. Uh, and the main reason that you know that is because you have people like Manchin and some other Democrats who are looking at this really leery, and they don't want to be involved with it at all. And so what Democrats have turned around and said is that, well, you know, we just have these people like Manchin and Kirsten Cinema in Arizona who are the ones standing against everything that we're doing, and they are the problem people here. And that all that also isn't true. There are other people involved here. But Joe Manchin has specifically answered this challenge by publishing this op-ed and firing back and going to some of the reasons that he opposes this bill. So, uh, after you jump a few paragraphs into his op-ed where he's he, you know, he does his, the introductory pleasantries that you would expect from a politician writing these sorts of things, he writes Unfortunately, we now are witnessing that the fundamental right to vote has itself become overtly politicized. Today's debate about how to best protect our right to vote and hold elections, however, is not about finding common ground, but seeking partisan advantage. Whether it is state laws that seek to needlessly restrict voting or politicians who ignore the need to secure our elections, partisan policymaking won't instill confidence in our democracy. It will destroy it. As such, congressional action on federal voting rights legislation must be the result of both the Democrats and Republicans coming together to find a pathway forward or we risk further dividing and destroying the republic we swore to protect and defend as elected officials. Democrats in Congress have proposed a sweeping election reform bill called the For the People Act. This more than 800-page bill has garnered zero Republican support. Why? Are the very Republican senators who voted to impeach Trump because of actions that led to an an attack on our democracy unwilling to support actions to strengthen our democracy? Are these same senators, whom many in my party applaud for their courage, now threats to the very democracy we seek to protect? The truth, I would argue, is that voting and election reform that is done in a partisan manner will all but ensure partisan divisions continue to deepen. With that in mind, some Democrats have again proposed eliminating the Senate filibuster rule in order to pass the For the People Act with only Democratic support. They've attempted to demonize the filibuster and conveniently ignore how it has been critical to protecting the rights of Democrats in the past. So notice sort of what Manchin He's doing here. He makes these broad-based attack on the politicization of voting, which is true. You saw this happen back uh, during 2020 with different states having to deal with the virus. You saw a lot of these sort of last-minute measures pushed on both sides of the aisle in order to deal with the pandemic. Some were trying out some of their wish list items that you find in some of the Before the People Act on the Democratic side. But then mentioned he goes on and talks about how he supports things. After these paragraphs, he goes into how he supports the Voting Rights Act. And there's other similar legislation in the House that he supports that would strengthen things like the Voting Rights Act in U.S. Code. 
but he's not supporting this law. What he does is he, he makes a difference between this law and some of the other things, primarily because it is a partisan-based bill. And it's, they're not allowing, Democrats aren't allowing any amendments from Republicans on this. This is what they want, and you're either on board with what they want to do, or you are an evil person. That's how they're selling this bill, and there's just no other ways through this. And that's why he points out the filibuster here. Democrats are saying, well, you know, if we can't get any support, we should just get rid of the filibuster and just shove it through. And what he's saying here is that, no, you can't because you would need my vote. And that's not coming for that either. So you shouldn't even bother to threaten something because it wouldn't get you what you want anyway. So the other thing that he does here is that he points out that you can't say all Republicans are just doing is just simply opposing everything Democrats are doing. You have some of these Republicans who voted for impeachment, and they are not supporting this bill either, which suggests there's more happening here than just some unilateral principled stand by Democrats. There has to be more reasoning there than just these people are just opposing Democrats. Republicans have fallen back in line and saying we're not supporting this bill. If you get into some of these other things where you're talking about the Voting Rights Act, there actually are Republicans willing to support this. And Manchin mentions a few of them, people like Lisa Murkowski in Alaska. There is bipartisan support for some of these other things, just not for this particular bill. And that's one of the lines that he draws here as well. So you have this hyper-partisan bill that progressives want that was drawn up by the far left, got no input from even the centrist of the, of the Democratic Party, and now they're being said, well, you now you have to swallow this. You have to eat this and pass this to be a part of the party. And that's just not going to fly. That would fly in either party. We've watched people like Ted Cruz try to push the same things on Republicans and they uniformly rejected this. This type of legislating does not work. The only place I've seen it work successfully is Nancy Pelosi in the House and how she manages to rule over the House with what can only be described as an iron fist where no one is allowed out of line is really something to behold. But she can only do that if she has a majority and if she can exercise that iron will on everyone. Otherwise, she's not capable of actually producing bipartisan legislation. She hammers things through on a partisan basis. She either has that or she doesn't. If she doesn't have that, she won't go through it with it at all. So Manchin, uh, he goes on, he ends his op-ed by saying, uh, I believe that partisan voting legislation will destroy the already weakening binds of our democracy, and for that reason, I will vote against the For the People Act. Furthermore, I will not vote to weaken or eliminate the filibuster. For as long as I have the privilege of being your U.S. Senator, I will fight to represent the people of West Virginia, to seek bipartisan compromise no matter how difficult, and to develop the political bonds that end divisions and help unite the country we love. American democracy is something special. It is bigger than one party or the tweet-filled partisan attacks that attack politics of the moment. It is my sincere hope that all of us, especially those who are privileged to serve, remember our responsibility to do more to unite this country before it is too late. Those are all beautiful and great sentiments from the Democratic Senator from West Virginia. And as a result, Democrats have proceeded to attack him nonstop since this thing came out early Sunday morning. And it's not just, you know, you're nobody. You expect the people like the, the squad type members or the far left progressive caucus, those types of people, they all attacked him. That's to be expected. 
The interesting thing here was that the National House leadership and some of the actual leaders of the Democratic Party were attacking Joe Manchin. You had uh, Jim Clyburn; he was one of the people who came out swinging at Manchin for this. Saying you had some of the uh, you know some of the more progressive people were, were were attacking him and saying that Manchin was supporting Jim Crow laws as a result of all this. And so you you had sort of the you know if progressives aren't getting what they want, they accuse you of either racism or supporting Jim Crow. That's to be expected. But they're not pointing to some of these other laws that he's saying that he does support. So this is all just, we want our one bill and we don't, and if you don't do this, you're an evil person. That's their only real argument here. They don't go into any of the specifics like Manchin did in his piece in some of the other paragraphs, which I'm not going to read through. If you want to, I'll link to it and you can go through what he thinks through everything there. There's some good thoughts in there. But you have this Democrat here, the centrist Democrat coming out saying, I'm not going to support this, and I'm not going to let you kill the filibuster just to get through this bad piece of legislation. The Senate is currently 50-50. Without me, it's 49 Democrats to 50 Republicans. So you're going to lose if they don't support it. So there's no need to nuke the filibuster over something that is guaranteed to lose. But even with all that said, I don't think... If you took out the filibuster and you made this a straight-up vote, I do not believe you would have Manchin being the only person that's voting against it, aside from Republicans. I think you would get some of these others who are using the filibuster to hide behind it because that sends it up to a 60-vote threshold where it's not going to pass through at that moment. But if you know it's going to fail, you can vote for this legislation because it makes you look better. And there's some of these centrists who are explicitly supporting the filibuster and not getting rid of it in terms of this bill who, if you removed that wall for them, I don't think they would actually support this legislation because it would hurt them. One, they don't agree with it. And two, it it would hurt them politically in their own states. So Manchin is not the only one here. I think you can sort of read between the the tea leaves. You can read between the lines to see what's happening here because because he wrote this the focus is on him the press is hyper focused on him that takes away the spotlight from some other people that could be on purpose on his part where he's trying to help out some of his other centrists by bringing the heat on himself so that they don't deal with it but or you know i mean that just could be the politics of the moment on this because it could be one of these things where chuck schumer is is allowing him to do this in order to provide more protection for some of these others who are up for re-election in 2022 that could be the political play here i don't know if schumer is actually that smart to do something like that Uh, i would personally if i were in his shoes i would just shelve this and say this is not going to happen why would i put my moderates to this so I don't know. There, there's a lot happening here that you could read between the lines to say is happening. But as far as people are concerned, the first other person we know who would ha- who could have issues with this is Kirsten Cinema of Arizona. Now, Cinema has tweeted that she supports this bill and she is a co-sponsor to it. But she's also not doing anything in regards to the filibuster. She wants to keep that, and she doesn't want that to leave in regards to this legislation or anything in the future on it. And that allows her to hide behind the hill of filibuster because she's she's taken a pretty low media profile and doesn't want to really talk about this bill. She doesn't want to talk about the filibuster at all. She's pretty much put out her statement and then ignores all reporter questions, all supporter questions to it on that exact point. And so she's basically hiding behind Manchin on this point. And she's one of the more prominent people who is, we know when people are talking about, you know, people who are opposing the Democratic agenda, they're talking about your cinemas and they're talking about your Joe Biden, I mean, not your Joe Bidens, your your Joe Manchins. 
they're the two that come up on everything, and you know it makes sense. In in they're both in in Mansion's case a completely red state, and in Cinema's case a reddish state where it is harder to win there if you are a Democrat. Although it has obviously gotten easier there in recent years. So she's the second one here I think you have to look at. And if her vote counted, and that means if you didn't have this filibuster here, I am not sure if she support, would support this legislation because the political calculations of what would go into this bill would change dramatically, and I don't think she would vote for it. There are two others here who also you'd also need to watch here who are Democrats, both in the same state. Uh, one's up for re-election in 2022. I didn't look to see when Shaheen is up, but they're both out of New Hampshire. So you have Senators Maggie Hassan, who's up for re-election in 2022, and then Jean Shaheen. And both of them have only offered up a very timid line along that would says, I would likely vote for this bill. They've not committed themselves to this. They have... They haven't said they support the filibuster, but they've also said they, they're not likely to vote for getting rid of it either. So they are both hiding behind this. Now, I find it interesting that both of them are doing this. In the, in the case of uh, Maggie Hassan, it makes some sense because she's up for re-election in 2022. She's very likely... I mean, very, very likely going to have to face the very popular Republican governor in New Hampshire right now, Chris Sununu, who has very favorable polling in his right now in a Senate matchup against Hassan. So if he decides to run, it's game on in New Hampshire. That is going to be ground zero for probably the most important race of 2022 in the Senate, because that's going to dictate terms of what happens in a lot of these other states. So she does not want to see very difficult votes right now. She knows she's up. She's got a very tough job right now. And if she starts losing favorabilities when she starts heading into a race against a person who is very popular right now in New Hampshire, and I'm talking like multiple double-digit wins when he was up for re-election, Sununu is probably the closest thing to a rock star governor you've got right now outside of, uh, of DeSantis in Florida. Uh, is I mean, I, I think he's got a very good chance of winning New Hampshire. But when you've got that, you don't want these tough votes here. And this is one of those tough votes for her. So she doesn't want to get rid of the filibuster. They're not, she's not want to communicate what she's going to do vote-wise. And I find it interesting that both New Hampshire senators are doing the same thing on this front. They're not really, they're really trying to keep a low profile here on this legislation, on the filibuster in general. And only one of them is up for re-election. So I think that could tell you a little bit about what they think, that how this is going to play in New Hampshire. And that's sort of an interesting dynamic that's playing out there. They've, they've got a popular Republican governor. They know he's going to run. And they know that that could make their lives miserable. So you put, put all those together with Cinema and Mansion. That gets you four people who have no interest in getting rid of the filibuster. Because politically, it's giving them cover. If the filibuster is there and you're a Democratic senator and you don't want to deal with the blowback to something where if push came to shove, you would not vote for the legislation, but with the 60-vote threshold and you know it's going to fail, you can vote for it and say, hey, I support you progressives too. I voted for this. But you know it's going to fail. You're in good shape. So I think that's the dynamic that you're seeing playing out here. Manchin is taking all the heat to let some of these others sort of stay protected behind this filibuster bubble that they've built for themselves. 
And so that's how we know straight up that this bill is going to is likely going to fail here straight up. We know it's not going to pass. It, then there's no way you're going to have the votes to get around a filibuster. There's no 60 votes sitting out there. No Republicans going to touch this. That's not going to happen. So, and it, but the, it's not just that. It's that this is not going to have a majority vote for it. This is going to be one of those where if it comes down to where we think things are right now, if these other Democrats vote for it because they know it's going to fail, then you're looking at 51, 49. They get the benefits of the vote for it while having to deal with none of the blowback of actually passing legislation. That's the vote. That's the hope anyway. And so this thing is going to fail. And you know it's going to fail because also this is how Chuck Schumer has decided to schedule it. He's booked this thing to be voted on at the end of June, right as the Senate is going into a two-week recess for July 4th. So if you're doing all that, that suggests that you don't think it's going to win and you're burying it there in a dead news cycle where you're not going to take any blowback here. So all this coming together... You're looking at dead legislation that progressives want, they're not going to get. They want to use the filibuster to get rid of it. That's not going to happen with this. Manchin's laid down the law here. Not going to happen. So, if you know it's going to fail, you want to schedule it. I mean, the classic is you schedule it on a Friday when no one's paying attention. In this case, you schedule it on a Friday when people are heading into a holiday and they really don't care. So, people are going to you know, do cast their votes for this thing and then hit the airports and get out of town. That's what's going to happen here. There'll be some skirmishes online, but for the most part, you're not going to see anything really happen here politically. So that's the layout of that legislation. If you're looking at 2022, which is what everyone is doing here and why they're sort of jockeying for their positions here, the Senate map for Republicans in 2022 is difficult. It's not impossible for them, but where the issue is is that they're going to be spread thin resource-wise because they have to defend a lot of territory. So these are the seats that would have been uh, voted on in 2016, six six years later. So, you know, obviously the dynamics have shifted quite a bit. This is more than likely going to be a Republican year. The bid-term fundamentals would uh, benefit Republicans. The problem is that they're having to defend a lot of new territory, and they're going to have to defend that territory with new faces. There are five Republicans retiring, mainly just due to age here. There could be potentially six. And so when you're defending you know, six retirements and you also have your battleground states, that's just a lot of ground to cover in you know, it's basically making this a near nationwide race on the Senate part. So that's just a lot of work on the Republican side. Um, just to start up, you know, you, I mentioned the New Hampshire race with Hassan. That's that's going to be the linchpin. There's going to be a lot of money and a lot of attention focused on New Hampshire. That's all contingent on the fact of uh, of Sununu jumping in. If he jumps in, then that is a competitive race. If he does not then I don't think it's a competitive race and, you know, you'll, we'll move the linchpin elsewhere. But I think he will. I really think he will because the dynamics will benefit him here. He'll have all the advantages of being in a midterm year with none of the issues of being in a presidential year where you've got to deal with any potential coattails from there. In this case, you're going to have all the benefits of people not liking Biden. His Biden's favorabilities, 
they're fine. They're not where you would want them to be if you're voting in midterm elections. So, and that's already now. So, um, you know, the next one up after that one is going to be North Carolina. You have Richard Burr retiring in North Carolina. So that's going to be, that's a true toss up because that's already a battleground state and you're going to have two new faces running for the seat there. So who knows what happens there, but it's going to be a tough race. You're going to have the new faces. There will be no incumbency advantage. Those are always hard to do. GOP, you know, they squeaked out a victory in 2020. They should theoretically be able to do that again here in 2022 because the dynamics and fundamentals will favor them. Uh, hopefully they get that midterm bump. If that happens, then new, new, I mean, North Carolina should swing their way. But again, that's going to be another tough race. You're going to see a lot of money dropped there. As always, a small fortune is going to get spent in Florida over Marco Rubio, but I think he'll be safe. But again, it, with Florida is involved, a lot of money is going to be involved. And the Senate is 50-50, so you know you're fighting. Both sides know they're fighting for control here. You're already at 50-50. You're trying to get an edge somewhere, and you've got to get it. So that means more than likely control of the Senate is going to come down to these states. Nevada, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina. Republicans are going to have several other seats up to defend because of those retirements. As I said, that's going to depend on Chuck Grassley in Iowa. Uh, but in a midterm year, I'm not expecting, even if he retires, and that would bring us up to six retirements, uh, I think the other eight seats that I mentioned are going to be the ones to determine it because I don't think Iowa is going to be a swing state. I think Republicans should be able to defend that even if it's with a new state. The other interesting race is going to be in Georgia. You have Ralph Raphael Warnock. He's going to be up for re-election. He won a special election this past fall. And now he's got to win his full term here in the real race here. Does Georgia do the same thing that it did, or do you see a reversion back? That's going to be an open question. Was Georgia an anomaly? We don't know. And then after that, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Ohio, Missouri, and Alabama. Those are where the retiring Republicans are. Some of those are going to be safe. Some are not. So it's just going to be a lot of territory for Republicans. And in 2022, there's going to be a lot of new faces, no matter how you, yeah, you know, how many shake it or bake it here. There's just going to be new faces across the board here, especially on the Republican side. So that's why you're seeing the heat get turned up on some of these votes here. Legislation like H.R. 1 is going to be ramping up further as we move along. Biden basically has this summer and fall to start getting big legislation through. And then you'll see after that, you're going to see Congress slow down a lot as people start focusing on their reelection campaigns and dealing with primaries and so on and so forth. So the legislation time is going to be this summer and this this fall and winter. After that, people are going to be transitioning to dealing with their primaries and you're going to see things slow down. That's sort of like the calendar of what to to do with here. Um, It's just you're going to see a lot of money pour into the Senate. It's 50-50. People want actual control. And that's going to be up in the air. So that's why you're seeing these skirmishes fight out now. Now, if I were Schumer, I would not have bring this thing to the floor. I would just dealt with the blowback myself and just said, hey, this is going to hurt my moderates. I wouldn't do this to them. He is one of the people who could deal with a primary. If uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez decides to primary him, all bets are off. That would be very, very interesting if that happened. No one knows if it will happen. But that's what he's scared of. So he, in his own self-interest, is going to bring these types of legislative things to the floor, let these people hide behind Manchin and the filibuster, and just hope for the best, because he himself 
does not want to be primaried. So there's a lot of things happening here that are impacting everyone, and everyone's going to have a little bit of funky behavior here as they're moving forward. But even with all that, just remember, this is not just Joe Manchin opposing these sorts of things. The Democrats and the progressive left have proposed a slew of things, none of which is designed to pass. And so it's hurting the moderates in the caucus. We're going to see how far this goes. This HR1, SR1 for the people uh, bill, it's the first real test on this point. There are going to be some more after this. You after, after the July 4th thing, you're going to see the Senate pivot and say, okay, now we're going to focus more on infrastructure. That'll be a whole other thing, and we'll talk about it when we get there. But this initial thing is going to be how do you get all these people past this first vote because some of them just don't want it. I'm going to take a break here, and then after we get back, we're going to hit the COVID-19 update. So this is the COVID-19 update for this week for the numbers going through June 6, 2021. There's been a lot of movement in the numbers this week, and it's all basically good news. We're we're seeing a distinct slowdown in, on the vaccination front. That's what it'd be expected at this point. We're it, at this point. It's just a, it's just a grind to get people vaccinated because you've hit all the low hanging fruit on where people are going to get that. So. But even with that, we have good numbers everywhere. So testing has fallen below a million per day. That's a good thing. As I've said, this, I expected this to happen much earlier. We have a much decreased need for getting people tested. In fact, we're probably still testing pe- too many people. Uh, we're averaging around 750,000 tests a day, which is about where we were last summer. Uh, the positivity rates on all these tests is at all-time lows. We're currently seeing only about 2% of all tests come back as positive nationally. 2%. That is the lowest number we've ever recorded, and it's continuing to go down. I fully expect this next week that Johns Hopkins University is going to report a sub-2% number. We're probably going to drop. I imagine it could drop by next this time next week. We could be talking about 1.5%, Just astronomical drops here. All, all the trend lines suggest it's going to continue to drop. And that is a good thing. Again, lowest ever recorded here. Vaccines have taken a massive chunk out of this virus's spread. So as such, because the positivity rate is so low, the seven-day average on new cases coming in each day has plummeted. We're only averaging right now 13,185 new cases a day. 13,000. Now remember, this was hitting close to 300,000 at some point. It's on some of the daily numbers. Close to 300,000 back at the start of the year. And six months later here, we're now sitting, more than likely this next week, we're going to drop below 10,000. I mean, that is astonishing. There are states that have had single-day highs where they're doing this by, well, more than this by themselves. So to see this drop this low on a national basis is a massive deal. This is just huge. That should tell you just how slow this thing is spreading now when you're only bringing in 13,000 across the entire United States of America. Again, these are only the tests, but this should tell you that this thing is having a much harder time spreading, which is a good thing. As a result, and, and you know, there's some people who are going to look at that number and going to say, well, you know, we're testing less. That means we're not going to know if we know whether or not the virus is spreading. We need to do more testing to know whether that's happening, which that was true last year. That is not true anymore. Now that we have vaccines, 
testing is not as important. It is, it is more important to know where your vaccinations are as opposed to where your tests are going. And here's the, here, this, is the, this is the same data point I've used to the entire point. If you want to know whether or not the virus is growing or shrinking, you don't always have to look at the daily tests or the daily case counts. You need to look at hospitalizations because whether or not you're testing enough you can always know whether or not the virus is testing due to hospitalization numbers because that is a number that is unaffected by anything that's happening around. If the virus is bad and people are ending up and getting a bad case of it, they're going to end up in the hospital, period. It doesn't matter if you test them or not, they're going to end up in the hospital. And so if your hospitalizations are dropping along with everything else, then that tells you that the trend lines that you're getting on cases, on your positivity rate, that tells you whether or not that's an accurate rate or not. I say all that to say that active hospitalizations are continuing to drop as well across the United States. So you cannot say that decreased testing is resulting in lower numbers. In the United States, active hospitalizations have fallen below 20,000 for the first time in forever. They're now currently sitting at 16,856. And the trend lines are dropping there as well. So Again, focus on these things that are constant, things like the hospitalizations, because those are going to be unaffected by your testing numbers. If those are falling, that tells you everything that you need to know. And right now, hospitalizations are continuing to fall nationally. Now, I know, and this is an annoyance that I have with some in the media, they'll say, oh, you know, we have a surge here in this state. Yes, it is true. We've seen some upticks in some individual small states and some individual communities. But nationally, the numbers are continuing to drop. And those flashes up in these current communities, I haven't seen one that is held yet. So you see these upticks occasionally. It could be for any number of reasons. It doesn't really matter because if it does happen, that is only happening in, in the unvaccinated population. If you are ending up hospitalized, most studies I've seen have said 90 plus percent of those people are unvaccinated. Period. And the virus is running out of people to infect due to either people who have already had it or who have had a vaccine. That's just the sum total of where we are right now. So always focus on hospitalizations because they tell you the real story across the board and hospitalizations are falling. And as a result of that, the death rate, which tracks along with hospitalizations, it's usually about a week or two behind them, it is also plummeting. So we're now well below 500 deaths a day, and now we're only seeing an average in the seven-day averages of 375 deaths a single day. Now remember, I, I think you have to go back. Back at the first of the year, we were above 3,000. And it stayed there for a long time, and a lot of deaths piled up. Over 600,000 people have died from this. We're going to cross the probably, we're around 612,000 now. We're, you know, depending on how long this takes to trail off, you're going to see that go north of 625,000 more than likely. I don't know where it's going to end up, but that is a lot of people who have died from this virus. But we have made significant progress. And 375 a day, I, I needed to go back and look at the charts on this, but I believe that's an all-time low. You would have to go back to the March period before, you know, it was just too early and we didn't know enough about it, and that was when we saw the initial surge and deaths were high. I don't think we've had any number this low in over a year. So that is fantastic news. So 
I start off with all those numbers because those are, you know, the main metrics. And they are all fantastic. And they're all fantastic because of vaccinations. That is what is driving these numbers lower and lower every day. And we crossed a big milestone there in the United States this past week. We crossed the 300 million mark. We've administered more than 300 million vaccinations nationwide. We're currently just shy of 302 million doses administered across the United States of America. That is a fantastic landmark. Um, we obviously want you want to vaccinate even more, but we have administered a ton of doses in this country, and we've done that in basically six months. That is what has happened, and it is a straight-up miracle that it has happened. I would like for it to happen faster, obviously, but that is great news. So if you divvy up that number, there are roughly 302 million people. That means roughly 51.5% of the total population now has had at least one dose of a vaccine. 42% are now fully vaccinated once you factor in the full two-dose regimen. But basically 52% of the American population total, period, is fully vaccinated at this point. Now, if you remember, I said uh, about four to six weeks ago that the numbers to watch here were these, these this 50% mark. And then from there, the 55% mark, and the closer you get to 60, the better. And that was because when that happened in Israel, their numbers dropped just off the face of the earth. And that's what's happening here. And I've mostly been measuring that against the adult population. Um, the Israeli numbers were against the total population. So we've now crossed the 50% mark. We're at nearly 52% of the total U.S. population. And that puts us in the same category as Israel. And that's when their numbers just, they plummeted and they've hit near zero. So I think you're going to see this next major drop in the U.S. numbers starting from here forward because we've crossed that marker here in the United States. And it's continuing to eke its way up. It's even better once you start compartmentalizing that and only looking at the populations that can get the vaccine, because that's where you get the really high numbers, and I think that tells you a little bit more and tells you why these numbers are dropping so fast. So, of course, we've opened up vaccines, certain vaccines to the 12 years old and up crowd. If you count from that point up, 61% of the population has had at least one dose. 50% is fully vaccinated. That's 12 years old and up. So, you know, you take out kids, and I think it's actually fair to do this, particularly on the kids' part, because this is not a distinct threat to children. That 12 years old and up, that's going to knock out your entire vulnerable population. Really, it's a 65 and 8 and up that you want to knock out your deaths and stuff. But if you want complete protection for your overall adult population, you need to measure it that way because this is not, this is not posed itself as a distinct threat to children. So, 12 years old and up, 61% of the total population has had at least one dose. And that's the important category. I think you have to measure with the one dose to tell you where your immunity levels are. If you look only at the adult population, 18 and above, 64% have had at least one dose, and 53% are now fully vaccinated. But the most important category, as I said, is the 65 and above category, your elderly population. 86.3% have had at least one dose, and 75.5% are now fully vaccinated. So the elderly population, I think, is fully within the herd immunity category. I think once you factor in those who have actually had the virus and may not be vaccinated, I think you're talking about a very, very small 
part of the population that is not vaccinated in that in that group. I just I don't think there's that many of them left. We're obviously trying to find them now. But once you factor in those who've had it, I think you're talking well north of 90, maybe even 95% of that group is now fully back, has some sort of level of immunity. I don't know how many haven't had it yet and haven't had a vaccine, but that number has got to be astronomically low at this point. We have really pushed vaccines in that age group, and that is what's helping us out in all these other categories. So that's where all our severe cases were. That's where all our hospitalizations were coming from. That's where all our deaths are coming from. And it's good to see them fully vaccinated. So the vaccines are doing their job. Everything now is pretty much open in America as it should be. A few weeks ago, you know, I was watching a sports journalist on Twitter. They were talking badly about things like the National Predators games and how the hockey games, they were full capacity. They saw people without masks. They were cheering, applauding, as you would expect in any sporting event. And, you know, it's been several, it's been a couple weeks now. There's been no outbreaks from that. I haven't seen any studies showing any outbreaks in any of these outdoor, indoor events, major events now, with vaccination being widespread. It's just not happening. So none of these events are a threat. We've seen some other things like that have happened in Texas where you have concerts, you have events, you have fights, uh, boxing matches, all those kinds of things, and there's literally no evidence that there's any outbreaks in any of these things. So all the the you know the hand wringing and the and the faux concern that people throw out here is just dumb. There's no reason to fear any of this and you should be able to go anywhere. And if you're vaccinated, this really doesn't matter to you anyway because you're protected. That's the other thing. I have now almost on a weekly basis I have one or two people text me like, why are people who are vaccinated acting so scared? And I can't give them a legitimate answer to this because I don't know. If you're vaccinated, you don't really care what's happening because you're protected. And that's the bottom line here. Some people are pretending that their masks are more protective than the vaccine, which is stupid. There is no scientific evidence that your mask protects you more than that vaccine. If you're vaccinated, your mask isn't providing you any extra protection. The masks are there for people who have it and are sick to wear. It's not for the healthy. The vaccine is your main line of defense. That is what you want. And if you have that, you are protected. And so that's what, you know, you got to keep hammering home with people's heads. Your mask isn't protecting you. Your vaccine is. If you don't get it, it's because you're vaccinated. Period. End of discussion. So, and I think... This last point that I've made here, it, you know, that the you know vaccines equal protection, and they're also the most important part here is that vaccines are protective against all the new variants that are popping up, and there are a ton of variants. Um, but I do want to highlight one here because it is the most important here because the most dangerous variant that we had have had yet has finally arrived. This is this if this thing had boss music like in a video game, it would have it um, because so far. All the variants have kind of have, have either they they basically had trade offs. So if a variant was more viral, where it spread easily, that usually meant that it wasn't as deadly. Or if it was more deadly, it didn't spread quite as quickly. Sometimes it was a little bit of both, but it wasn't enough to break through any and it, or it caused a distinct concern. The newest variant is the Indian variant, and it is uniquely viral, and it is also uniquely dangerous. It is the first one that that has combined both of those factors to be much worse than any of the other variants and much worse than the traditional version that first came out. And so, it, like I said, it's the first variant that combines being both very viral and very deadly at the same time, or just very dangerous. It could send you into the hospital. 
which is explaining kind of sort of why we're seeing such really bad numbers out of India. Uh, but if you're if you're vaccinated, you have protection against the Indian variant. All the vaccine makers that I've said have all indicated the same thing. I'm not expecting actually any booster shots from any of the vaccines. If there is, it's going to be more than a year from now, just because the main focus is going to be get these first doses out to everyone. Um, so, but if you're vaccinated, you are protected. That is the thing you need to remember here. And so, if you're young and healthy, you know, I would just tell you, you know, go get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. It's a one dose. Boom, you're done. Call it a day. It's free. You can get it anywhere. You can walk in and get it places, and you'll be fine. And I'd also say to get one of those, to get a vaccination dose, even if you've had the virus in America at this point. And here's why. If you have immunity to this virus, you get a general protection. If you've had it, you get a protection against that strain that you had. The issues here are come through with breakthrough cases. This Indian variant is more likely to cause a breakthrough case, whether you're vaccinated or whether you've had it. So you want to have that extra boost of immunity there. If you've had the double dose of the mRNA vaccines, I think you're fine. If you're young, the Johnson & Johnson is enough to protect you. Um, if you've had it, I would recommend going ahead and getting one of those vaccination doses because it's going to boost your immune system and pretty much mean and nullify even the Indian variant for you because it's going to give you that extra boost because the double-dose regimen, it just boosts your immunity level up and it's helping you out. And I think the same thing will happen here if you've had it. The other thing is that if you have any kind of lingering symptoms or feelings from COVID, getting that vaccination dose, there have been a lot of people who have reported that they've gotten better. So if you have any lingering side effects or you're worried about them long-term, I would go ahead and get the vaccine dose to clear up those as well. These things have done a good job of clearing up anything related to COVID, and having that will help you out too. And if you just want one dose of an mRNA vaccine of Pfizer or Moderna, that's fine too. Go ahead and do that. I don't care, especially if you've already had it. Uh, just boosting your immunity level to get you to make sure that this Indian variant in particular is not a threat is very important. Um, the data and numbers on it are just bad. I wouldn't want to mess with it. I'm glad to be vaccinated with and not have to worry about it, but it is something to take very seriously. It's not some of these other variants. I think you can just sort of, they're fine. They're bad. COVID-19 in general is bad, but they haven't, in, they haven't produced the kind of numbers that this specific variant has done. And vaccines are the way to get out of that. So again, the data and numbers, very clear. American vaccination technology is defeating this thing. Operation Warp Speed worked. It is a success. What is also clear, though, is that Chinese vaccination technology does not work. If you look at the data coming out of some of these countries that relied on cheap Chinese vaccines, there are a ton of cases. There are a ton of breakthrough cases. The Chinese vaccines do not work. I mean, you might find a little drop in, in some of it because it is something, but it's not, it's, it, it's not enough to be trotting out to a full population. Some of these countries should just go ahead and say, okay, we need to get some of these other vaccines because China is, has failed us here and we cannot allow this to continue happening. This is partially why I think we need to investigate China on the lab leak theory. We also need to do a full investigation on their vaccines because these things are awful and they're not working and they're not helping some of these countries. And there's going to be more dead people as a result of this because the vaccines that they're getting are not protecting them. So again, American technology, biotechnology, vaccine technology, we're awesome. Ours is working. The data is clear on that. China's does not. Do not get a Chinese vaccine. Get an American-made vaccine. 
and you'll be in good shape and good to go. And I'm not trying to fear monger here. I'm just, there's just, these are some very simple facts. There's some very simple data on this. And if you look at what the Indian variant has done and how it's a little bit different, I don't think you should ignore it. And I know there are people out there who haven't gotten in one. And I think if you just have a free, it's, this is a free insurance plan. And it's an American-made vaccine that nullifies the threat that came, in my opinion, out of a Chinese laboratory where they, that they designed to go after human lungs. And so this looks to be sort of like one of the final boss versions of COVID-19. And if you look at the first version of SARS that popped up in the early 2000s, the people who have immunity from that, their immunity is still continuing. So I, I think this is going to be one of those things where your immunity that you get from vaccines and from natural immunity is going to last for some time, decades more than likely. So this is a long-term insurance plan, giving your body the tools it needs to fight something that is going to be with us for a while. So that's my pitch. You know, this thing is still a threat, even though the numbers are going down and you don't want to be exposed to the Indian variant. And the best way to protect yourself from that is getting a vaccine. So that is all for this week on the substantive sections. As I said at the top, the light item this week is from this weekend. So June 6 is the anniversary of the D-Day landings from World War II in Normandy, and I wanted to share Franklin Delano Roosevelt's D-Day prayer, which he gave the day after the landings, asking for people to pray for the soldiers there. We have recordings of that. It is quite a powerful thing, and it's just good to remember that. You know, we, we had Memorial Day. We have this D-Day remembrance here. We're coming up here soon in about a month on July 4th. It's a good time to think back and look at this time of the nation's history and what other people have done to lay down their lives to protect us and give us the world that we have today. So here is FDR's D-Day prayer. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. And so, in this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace, and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore tried by night and by day, without rest, until the victory is won.
The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. For these men are lately drawn from the ways of peace. They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters, and brothers of brave men overseas, whose thoughts and prayers are ever with them. Help us, almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in thee in this hour of great sacrifice. Many people have urged that I call the nation into a single day of special prayer. But because the road is long and the desire is great, I ask that our people devote themselves in a continuance of prayer. As we rise to each new day, and again when each day is spent, let words of prayer be on our lips, invoking thy help to our efforts. Give us strength, too, strengthen our daily tasks, to redouble the contributions we make in the physical and the material support of our armed forces. And let our hearts be stout, to wait out the long travel to bear sorrows that may come, to impart our courage unto our sons, wheresoever they may be. And, O oh Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. Let not the keenness of our spirit ever be dulled. Let not the impacts of temporary events, of temporal matters of but fleeting moment, let not these deter us in our unconquerable purpose. With thy blessing, we shall prevail over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogances. Lead us to the saving of our country 
and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace, a peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men, and a peace that will let all men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done, almighty God. Amen. Pretty powerful stuff, and I agree. Amen to all that, especially the last part for us. Since we're living in the peace that they fought and died for on that day. So that is all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information of the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next calls Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute, and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure you sign up for that and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.